Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verse number 11 through 14 this morning. Looking back still on pulling back the curtain of the old and new, the old covenant and the coming in of the new covenant. And this morning I want to look at the effects of Christ's superior ministry. That what Christ had done for us definitely has effects in our personal lives. And we need to know what those effects are. Often when you're evangelizing people and talking about the gospel with people, no matter who they are, one of the things that they may always come up with when you're talking with them is, especially when it comes to if you ask them if you're going to die today, you know where you're going, and or how do you know... You could be right with God. They often say, well, I don't think anybody could really know that. And I don't know if anybody knows when they die really where they're going. So there is this great cloud of doubt over most systems of religion in the world. And, of course, they're basing their getting to God on what they have done, the good works or the bad works, and that's about it. And that's how the systems work. So when you come to a passage of Scripture like this, it really bolsters our confidence to know, listen, our salvation is really based on solid foundation because our salvation is all of God. And it is not of us at all. So the New Covenant, offers a superlative plan of salvation for sinful humanity. The Old Covenant, by way of reminder, and its system of sacrifices and priestly order were powerless to take away sin. The worshipers were continually plagued by a guilty conscience. They lacked peace. The old system, at its best, gave restricted access to God, partial external cleansing, and limited pardon. Now, the old system was definitely incapable of bringing the Israelites into a permanent right standing before God. The old covenant was unable to take the blameworthy sinner that sinner who usually is overwhelmed by, or by remorse and longing to be released from the oppression and tyranny of unrelieved guilt and completely free, freed them. The Old Covenant couldn't do that. It is at this very thought that the Christian realizes, and I hope you do realize this, how superior to anything else is this so great salvation the Lord has given to us. Nothing comes close to it. No design of man could have accomplished and designed what God had done in this plan of salvation. A Christian can really stand and declare, I've been saved. My whole position has changed before God. 
I have gone from being to the place of being unsaved to being saved, from one of being condemned to one of being freed from God's condemnation. In other words, we can know that we have been moved from one place to another place and really say, I'm a Christian, and where I, when I die, I know where I'm going. We can say that with assurance, not based on our good works, not based on our religiosity, not based on our moralism, not based on our ethics, not based on anything but Christ's sacrifice in our behalf. That's how someone gets saved. So when we realize that God did this, and when we realize that God did this, we realize this, that it wasn't simply the best solution to the human dilemma. It was the only solution to the human dilemma. There are not many ways, there are not many paths, there are not many religions to God. There is only one way, and it is a narrow way. I love that passage of Scripture in Acts 4.12, where it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Saved from the just penalty of our sins against God that incurs His wrath. That's what we're saved from. So this morning, I would like you to take your Bibles, and I want you to get a fresh appreciation for the redemption that God has provided, and even to see this morning the practical effects of the new covenant that comes into your daily life. So today, from our passage, I want to look at really four vital effects of Christ's superior ministry on our behalf, which actually he acquired on our behalf, or he incurred on our behalf, he obtained on our behalf. And here's the first one. The first effect that Christ's superior ministry acquires for us is simply this, a secure and good future. A secure and good future. Now, that's what most people are looking for, right? Well, look at this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared, Hebrews 9.11, as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Then look, look down at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For the law... Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, that our future in Christ is a good one. We actually have one. And... uh that should be of a great encouragement to us. In this passage of Scripture, in verse number 11, it says, And when Christ appeared, Jesus the God-man acquired uh, what no priest could. And, and what was that? To actually appear. 
It means to come forth, to make one's public official appearance. In other words, Jesus made his appearance in the very presence of God. That's what high priests weren't able to do. They could do it once a year for a short period of time, and that was it. Jesus comes into the presence of God for good. He does it on his own power, by his own will, on our behalf, not his own. So the tabernacle Jesus entered was not a physical or a created tabernacle, not created from any materials at least visible on earth to the human eye. The heavenly tent is far greater than that which housed the earthly holy of holies. So because Jesus entered into the presence of the Father, meaning it was all done, it was all finished, it was all complete, our future is filled with good things. Our future is not filled with the fires of hell. It's not filled with the wrath of God because of our sin. It's filled with the good things that God is going to offer us and give us. And the number of those things are innumerable. And one of them is, though, a secure future. It also says something else in verse number 11, that Christ entered an uncreated place, if I could say it that way, that the old earthly sanctuary was God's prescribed method of approaching him. So it did have glory to it. It did have beauty to it. Beauty was connected to it. But remember this, it was only, look back at chapter 9, verse number 10, it says it was only for until the time of Reformation. The last part of verse number 10. It was imposed upon us or given to us and given to the nation of Israel until the time of Reformation. In other words, that it was only temporary. It was only operating until the time Christ would come and set things straight and replace the old covenant with the new covenant. See, a season of reformation, some have called it, or the perfecting of things, even connected to the time of Messiah, that is not all done, that the Lord's plan is still going on, and of course it will culminate with His presence as King of kings and Lord of lords in Jerusalem, which he will bring peace to this present world. And then the kingdom of God will come to earth finally and completely, and the Lord would consummate all things, deliver the kingdom back up to the Father, and God will be all in all. That's where it's all heading. So Jesus passed through the created heavens in the incarnation, but the heaven, this heaven is the uncreated place where God dwells, and now the way into the glory and the majesty of the heavenly sanctuary has been made known, has been made manifest. And here's the question. We know the way, as believers, into the heavenly sanctuary. We know how to get there. We know how to enter there. We know that. That is the greatest news that we could ever have because the question really is how can i know the way to god how can i enter into god's presence i remember the what jesus said to the disciples specifically in thomas's response remember what he said in john 14 actually we read part of it this morning 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Remember, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, right? If it were not so, I would have not told you. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am there, you may be also. Remember when he said that? And then he said this, and you know the way where I'm going. He says to his disciples, you guys know the way. You know how to be right with God. You know the way into the heavenly sanctuary. But a lot of us, like Thomas, what does Thomas say? He says this, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how do we know the way? We don't know. But we'd like to know. What did Jesus say to him? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You want to know the way? Come to Christ, right? Come to me and you'll know the way. See, this is, again, the effect of good things for a believer to know where you're going when you pass from this world while you're here and with confidence. See, that is a great gift that God gives us and that just opens the door to all good things to come for his children because we are now kingdom kids. We have royal blood running through our veins because we're children of the king, right? We have the authority to be called sons of God. That's, that's, your identity is totally changed in Christ. I am somebody in Christ. I am a nobody, but I am somebody in Christ. He makes me somebody. He makes me by virtue of being connected to him as my Lord and Savior, being now born into his family, born into his kingdom. He makes me something. And you. Gives us great confidence. We need that kind of confidence today. We need that kind of assurance today. But there's a second effect that Christ's superior sacrifice acquires for us. And I think it's one of the greatest ones in all the Bible, and that's found in verse number 12 of Hebrews 9, and it's this. It is our eternal redemption. Look what it says in verse number 12. It says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Now, several things in this passage of Scripture that I want to bring to your attention. He first of all says, listen, it's not by the blood of goats and calves. What does he mean by that? Well, Christ did not need two kinds of blood in this sense. The blood of goats, remember, back in Leviticus. Matter of fact, take your Bibles there. Look at the Leviticus chapter 9, verse number 12, at least the first part of verse number 12. The blood of goats was offered for the people's sin. Remember when the high priest got ready for the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? He first brought in the blood for the people. It says in Leviticus 16.9, Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make a sin offering. That's what he, he was to do. All right, And then there was a second set of blood, and that was blood of calves. Look in, in Leviticus 16.11, and that was the sins for the high priest, for his own sins. Look what it says in verse 11 of Leviticus 16. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself 
and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall, she, she shall, he, he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Again, three times himself is used in that passage. Why? Because the high priest was a sinner. He was to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could ever go into the presence of God. He was to lay his hands on that scapegoat and transfer his sin to the goat symbolically and then send that goat away. And then then one goat was, of course, a lot was fell for the sacrifice. So, see, the point is that Christ did not need blood for his own sins and then enter a second with the blood for the sins of the people. He didn't have to do that. Why? Because he was sinless, right? He didn't die for himself. He died for us. Now, some theologians have said, well, wait a minute. Did Christ actually present his blood in heaven? Well, that, That's a, a question that's going to be debated for a while, but if you notice in the passage of Scripture in Hebrews Chapter 12, it says that Jesus entered. It says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. It doesn't say in this passage of Scripture that he entered with blood, but by or through his blood, that is by the virtue of his atoning work at his death. And several reputable commentators have said that Jesus did not carry his poured out blood to heaven, but used it as a means of expiation or the sending away of sin and then ransoming of purchasing you and I who were caught in the slave market of sin. That's what he did. Because he didn't have to offer it for himself. He offered his own blood for us. And then... Also, unlike the Levitical high priest who entered each year to offer animals' blood, Christ entered once, there to remain an advocate for all believers. He didn't enter there to leave and do it again. He entered once. It was done. It was complete. It was forever. And that's why also in verse number 12, what you see is that not only did Christ enter through his own blood, but he entered the most holy place once for all. Once for all. And remember, the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, for the Jew, for the Israelite, reminded them of their sins. The reason why this is happening today is because I'm a sinner. And so the whole Day of Atonement that happened once a year, every day led up to that day, and it reminded them every day that they were sinners. But the fact... That Jesus entered the holy place once for all screams of the once for all promise that it is God's will to forget your sin and not to remember it. It's not God's will for him to remember your sin. It's God's will for him to forget your sin. To put it behind you and I completely and forever so our fellowship would be pure and 
clean with Christ. So Christ entered there into the presence of the Father and stayed there never to return to offer again a sacrifice. He doesn't have to do that. It's once uh, for all, forever. Um, It is a done deal. And then the last part of verse number 12, which is the key part of this verse, that Christ entered having obtained redemption. It's interesting how it says that, that when he entered, it was done. He already did it. He obtained it. He had it. It was complete when he entered into heaven. Just, again, backing up everything the Word of God says about salvation. Now, before I go any further, I, I want to point your attention to yet another Greek word here, and it's the word uh, for redemption. It's the idea, redemption. Now, everybody knows what redemption is. Matter of fact, we do it all the time. It's the idea of buying something. We like to buy things, don't we? We redeem things all the time. We purchase things all the time, right? That's what we do. Actually, what we do is when we go buy a shirt, we're redeeming that shirt. Of course, not in the same way the Bible talks about it, but we're paying for it to set it free from that store so it can adorn your body, all right? That's what you're doing. So see, that is part of the understanding of this particular word. It means to buy something. It is the very word, it's lutrosin or lutro, and it means at least biblically, redemption from the penalty of sin. It is a word that depicts the release or liberation of a captive. The blood is, in other words, the lutron. The blood is the ransom that was paid by Christ in order to effect release for sin and from sin and guilt. It's like Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, remember, come short of the glory of God. But what's the next verse say? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So see, it is Jesus who is part of the process of buying you, redeeming you, purchasing you from something. Actually, this word in Romans means to release, a release affected by payment or ransom, to release on payment of a ransom. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It was the psalmist who said, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. And then in verse number 8, it says, For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease from trying forever. In a very real way, no man could pay for the soul of someone else. That cost is too great, it's too large, it's too big. No church, no religious system could do that. It is beyond the scope of any human being to be able to pull that one off. But that's exactly what had to be pulled off for our salvation. That's why when you come to the New Testament and you read the beginning parts 
of the Gospels, you find words like this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited His people and accomplished redemption for His people. That becomes a very key element to what the Word of God says. Now here's the question. Who was the ransom paid to? Some say, actually there's two major views on this one. Some say the ransom was paid to Satan. Because Satan held fallen man under bondage. In other words, Satan was the kidnapper who snatched us away from the Father's house and Christ came and paid a ransom to the devil to set us free. But if that is the case, if that is the case, it would be the kidnapper who had the upper hand because it would be the kidnapper who would set the ransom price. If the ransom was paid to Satan, then it would be Satan who would be the victor and not Christ. Now, so that can't be the correct answer. I'm not going there at all. And the reason why I I don't go there is not because it doesn't seem logical. It should if you know enough of the Bible, and it doesn't seem like what the Bible teaches. But there are specific passages of Scripture that tip that thing right up on its head. And one of them is 1 John, like you turned there. Look look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 5. Just one section of Scripture where the Bible sheds light on who actually is the victor. And in this passage, in 1 John 3, in verse number 5, we see the work of Christ being displayed. And the two parts of the work of Christ, if I can mention here in this passage of Scripture, the first one, it says in the first part of the verse, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, right? That's what the Lord did. He came to take away sins. He came in order... Uh, he appeared in order for you and I to take away or to remove, to lift from us, to carry from us our sin and send it from us. That's one of the things he does. Now, the ironic thing about that particular thing is why do we wish to retain which Christ came to remove? We, lo- we love our sin. And the very thing that Christ came to remove, we want to hold on to. And the Bible is telling us here, no, Christ came. His mission was to take away sin and remove it completely from you forever. That's what his job was in your behalf. But there's a second thing in verse number 8 of this passage of Scripture. First uh, John 3, I think it's verse 8. I don't know if I had the right verse here. Uh, yeah, look at verse number 8. It says, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So who's the victor in our passage? The victor is, of course, Jesus Christ. The devil, remember, is the originator and instigator of sin. He brought sin into the world. His works include opposing the work of God. He still does that, tempting people to sin, and then enslaving them. Until death, that's what he wants to do. He wants to blind them, keep them from the truth, enslave them. His work also includes keeping people in darkness and binding them so they can't 
get free. See, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That means to render his work inoperative and powerless. He breaks the devil's control by dying in the place of a sinner and becoming the satisfaction for the Father, the propitiation for their sins. In other words, Jesus' atoning sacrifice dealt with the problem of human sin and in doing so, destroyed the work of the devil forever. So again... This cannot be the correct answer to the question that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan. That is not the correct answer. No, the ransom was not paid to Satan. The ransom was paid to God. The ransom was paid to God because God was the one who who needed to be satisfied. When the Bible speaks of ransom, it speaks of that ransom being paid not to a criminal, but the one who is owed the price of redemption, the one who is offended, the one who is the offended party in the whole complex of sin is the Father himself. The Father has been offended. So Jesus paid the ransom to the Father. That's what he did. Jesus offered himself a payment to the Father for us, and in doing so, made redemption for his people, redeeming them from their captivity, from their slavery. This is so rich in the Word of God, I don't want you to miss the picture here, because really it has redemption or what the Bible calls the kinsman redeemer is, is a, something found in the Old Testament. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to a passage of Scripture in, in Leviticus. We're going to come back to Hebrews. But a Le- a Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 to 27, gives us a sense that a kinsman redeemer, kinsman meaning a relative within the blood family, that is able to redeem somebody or some property that a person lost, most likely because they became poor. But the concept is that of purchasing something for someone that could not purchase it for themselves or have had lost it. Look what it says in verse number 25, or 23 of Leviticus 25. The landowner, moreover, shall not be sold permanently... For his land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Verse 24, thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative had sold, or in the case A man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for his redemption. He shall calculate the year since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. See, in ancient Israel, it was the custom for a family to take take care of the debts of their relative members. We don't do that today, do we? Um, But if... Any member of the family became poor, and that 
piece of property was to stay in the family and that person had to sell it, his kinsman redeemer would step up and say, listen, I'm going to buy that back to you. I'm going to buy that back for you. And then usually at the end of the year of Jubilee, they would give the properties back to those who actually were supposed to own it. But see, it came to a point where the person wasn't able. He, had, he was in debt. He was poor. He wasn't able to hold on to his property so he would have to sell it. The kinsman redeemer would come and buy it back and redeem it. So the kinsman could come and pay the price that was owed in order to redeem the property back. Now, the interesting thing about the kinsman redeemer is that they had to qualify in order to buy it back. You can't just have good intentions. You have to have, number one, you have to be a relative. You have to be related to this person. Secondly, you had to be able to pay the ransom price. In other words, you had to be wealthy enough that if you're going to buy this for your relative, that it wouldn't put you in jeopardy. So you had to be able to do it. You had to be wealthy enough, rich enough to do it. And then a third thing, you had to be willing to pay the ransom price. You had to be willing to do it. You could say, you know what, I don't really want to do it. And um, you wouldn't do it. So there has to be a willingness on the part of the kinsman redeemer to want to buy it back. Now, you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, right, from the Old Testament. Boaz acts as a what? A kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. Why? Because Naomi and Ruth lost their, what they had because their husbands all died. They had no husbands. So Boaz comes up, he realizes their plight, and he redeems them. He buys it all back for them. And of course, all these examples in the Old Testament can be applied to the work of the Messiah in his atonement, in the ransom that Christ pays. What does he do? He works as a kinsman redeemer for his people. He steps up, right? And what does he do? He purchases for us, our redemption, our salvation. Why? Because we are so in debt because of our sin to God. We could never pay it off. That's why hell is eternal. Because the debt can never be paid off that in which we offended God. And then our elder brother, which already has been mentioned in Hebrews, he pays the indebtedness that we have incurred before God, an unpayable debt. He buys us out of indentured servitude by paying the price for our freedom, he restores us then to our inheritance in the Father's kingdom. So therefore, Christ came and paid the ransom in order to secure the release of his people who were held captive to sin, and then Christ purchased eternal redemption to those who have been called to salvation in by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he does. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He is able to do it because he's God. He's able to pull off what no man could do to buy souls back. And he's able to do it because he's willing to do it. It wasn't like these unwilling and unknowing sacrifices of calves and, and goats and lambs. Christ stepped up willingly to die in our place. Willingly. I'll do it. He was assigned to do it. 
And he did it for us, and he completed it forever on our behalf. To me, this is kind of theology that frees you. And you know where it frees you? It frees you in your inside. It frees you in your conscience. It frees you in the places where Satan wants to condemn you. It frees you from your past history, which for some haven't been very good. And it frees you from from the fear of the future. It, It really lays you bare and open in the present to be able to say, this is what my Lord did in my behalf because I would never be able to do it. See, that's the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God that is what? Lavished upon us. It's overabunding. Abundant. It just his cup just overflows for his children. So you and I can have a relationship with him. But this brings me to my third. Point in Hebrews, back to Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse number 13, that this next thing that Christ acquires on our behalf really is connected with the other ones in that Christ's superior ministry acquired for us a purified conscience. And this is what I mean, the inside of us. Look what it says in verse number 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. Well, let me stop there and just explain that, that under the old covenant, the worshipers were benefited in a very personal way when they followed the procedures for cleansing and offered the correct sacrifices for their sin. What was the benefit? That the sacrificial blood of animals did remove their defilement and actually set them apart as holy unto the Lord. But notice in verse number 13, it says this. It says in verse number 13, only for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, it did not free the conscience from the deadly guilt and all evil deeds. The conscience needs a far greater cleansing to put it at rest than the blood of animals. It did clean the outside, though. And it did set a person aside for at least that year period to have a relationship with God, but that's it. And the problem is we sin so much that as soon as you stepped away from the sacrifice of the one-year atonement, you're already guilty. So... One sin upon another sin upon another sin upon another sacrifice upon another sacrifice upon another ritual. And the person just was guilt-ridden in their conscience all the time. Remember? It's the heart that needs to be cleansed. It's the heart that needs uh, to be softened. God needs to remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So see, the conscience needs a far greater cleansing to put it to rest. So, what we do is we go from a lesser sacrifice to a greater sacrifice. The lesser sacrifice being the blood of bulls and goats. 
that was limited. But look at the greater sacrifice that was a complete and a total sacrifice. In fact, the solution to an inner defiled conscience is found right in verse 14, where it says, how much more, verse 14, Hebrews 9, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and it says, cleanse your conscience. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses from all external and internal uncleanness and defilement, which incurs guilt. He cleanses the conscience. In fact, the blood of Christ is God's answer answer to man's disturbed conscience. The blood of Christ is the answer to people who are are not at rest inside, guilty because of sin, rightly condemned by God because of that sin, justly condemned, but they don't know where to go. So what do they do? They, They start a religious system. They start doing good works. And they start forming God in their own mind on a God that they can control, a God who would be pleased with them, a God who would listen to them. And yet, you know what? It would be no different than what Israel did. Uh, Like in Jeremiah, where when God gives a, a... Jeremiah writes a satire of idolatry, and this is what he says to the people who... Stop listening to the word of God. Stop following the God of Israel. And he simply says this to him. He says, every man is stupid. Devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful. And there is no breath in them. Isn't that what we do? We just make up another way that can soothe in our conscience, that can keep us keep it down a bit so we don't feel so guilty and empty and lost. But it's the blood of Christ that is the answer to man's disturbed conscience. A person who comes to Christ can know he is forgiven. That's what soothes the conscience. I know I'm forgiven. Well, how do you know that? Because of what Christ has done. Because he redeemed me from the slave market of sin. And he took my sin and sent it away. And instead of remembering my sin, he says he forgets my sin. I am forgiven by God. That's what calms your conscience down. Thank you, Lord. The God who created the heaven and the earth, I'm right with. You can be right with. That's where it's at. In fact, a couple passages just that come to my mind. I remember when I was in Acts, uh, th- this whole thing about where, where even when, when the preaching was being done in Acts, in ch- chapter 15 and verse number 9, he says this. Listen what he says. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. There it is. The cleansing of the heart the cleansing of the mind and the emotion and the will that taunts us because of our sin, because of our dirtiness, because of our 
defilement that we have acquired while in this world. See, the Word of God, again in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So that's what the Lord does. In fact, the Lord has to do this. He has to purify you. He has to cleanse you in order to allow you in to his holy presence. You can't come in otherwise. But there is... One other thing that I wanted to mention, and it's the last thing, and I'll say this quickly, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 14, something else is said at the end of the verse that I think is very significant, that the fourth effect that Christ's superior ministry acquires for us is a sanctified service. A purified conscience leads to a sanctified service. In other words, what am I saying? That you are saved to serve God. You're saved to serve God. Matter of fact, you're freed up from a guilty guilty conscience to serve God. Look what it says in verse number 14. It says, not only are you, does the word of God tell you that you are cleansed in your conscience, but it says to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That the dead works are all the formal, empty, false, legal observances, the self-invented works, the religious systems where men would seek to stand before God. God actually cleanses you from that and from dead works too. All the dead works, all the things you try to do to appease God in your own mind and your own doing and your own works. God says, I'm going to cleanse you from those things too. Because they could have never brought salvation. They only bring damnation. The road to religion is marked heaven this way, but ends in hell. So dead works just further defile a person. They provide no ability to cleanse the conscience and give no power to enable a person to serve God rightly and willingly from their heart. Some people hope that having done such things that their good deeds would outweigh their bad and they would be accepted before God based on their merit. Isn't that where all systems end up? It seems to me that's the case, talking to people about the Lord. That's what they have in their mind. Somehow God has these divine scales in heaven and and hopefully my good works out outweigh my bad no that's all vanity that's all grasping after the wind none of those things none of those things could make you right with God see that's why they can never really know Biblical Christians can know. And notice what it says in verse number 14. Not only do you get cleansed of your conscience, cleansed from dead works, but look at what happens to serve the living God. I'm cleansed to serve. 
I go from one slavery, or the slavery of sin, to a slavery of serving God. But again, as I mentioned last time, slavery has to do with your master. In this case, the Lord's a good master. You and I receive the new life that restores our fellowship with God so that we can engage in energetic service to him. So that means that, listen, service that counts for eternity, that when you become a Christian, really your service, your good works actually start after conversion. So people are not saved by being sincere about their own faith. They can be sincerely wrong. Most of the time they are. See, God has appointed one way of salvation. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is what is at stake for you and I. The eternal salvation of perishing people. That's what's at stake. And if God rescued you from that, you have to worship him and serve him. You can't do any, any, anything other than that. In fact, that's why you have been created. Your ears to hear the word of God, your heart and your will to serve God with all your might. Why? Because before us are good things. In this world, we will have tribulation. The Bible tells us that. We're going to have suffering. That's going to be part of the whole lot. But the good things are ahead for those who know the Lord Why? Because I have a good future, I have eternal redemption, I have a purified conscience, and I have now sanctified service. How great a salvation God has given to you and I. There is nothing that comes near it. Nothing. That's why I must declare there's only one way. There's not many ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to Use it in our life to encourage us, to teach us, and Lord, to build us up in the faith. Lord, I pray that we not walk out this building today if we have not dealt with what your word says. Lord, let us be the kind of people who can know that we have eternal life because of what is written in the word of God. But Lord, let us not just talk about it. Let us put it into action and service and live for you, Lord, with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, just like the two, the great commandments of the Old Testament and recorded in the New. Lord, first to love you and then to love people. Lord, use us in that manner and give us the confidence and boldness to live with gusto for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen.